0: I would like to introduce our main speaker for this evening, Butch M. from Santee. Good <laughs> evening, everybody. My name is Butch an alcoholic. <clears throat> I haven't had a drink all day. I haven't wanted a drink all day. And that was not always the case. Uh, I got here when I was young. Uh, I had uh, been intervened upon by a Navy drug and alcohol counselor, and I didn't want to be here. I didn't want anything to do with you people. And uh, he made me, uh, he gave me this uh, piece of paper that he said he wanted, signed it, uh, two meetings a week for four weeks, and turned it into my command, and then uh, I was supposed to uh, be done. And I walked out of his office, I was 24 years old, I'd been out of the the boot camp about two months, two and a half months, (coughs) excuse me. And uh, I walked out of his office, and I, and I remember feeling rather confused and, and disoriented and, 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 and very emotional and not sure what quite was going on. Uh, I couldn't seem to make the simplest decision uh, of what to do next, what, ta- what task to, uh, to, to go and accomplish, which, which of my files to take back first and which to do second. I made two or three false starts. And I, and I stood there on a Navy base, full dress uniform, you know, grown up and wanting to cry. And I'm thinking to myself, what's wrong with this picture? Um, and so I thought, okay, let's go sit down in the cafeteria, my home away from home on base, you know, sit down, smoke a cigarette, have a cup of coffee, try to figure out what to do next. Now, let me, let me back up a little bit. <clears throat> I grew up in a family where alcohol was around all the time, and it was being consumed all the time. Uh, My great-grandmother and great-grandfather came from Poland in the early part of the 20th century. A lot of our immigrant parents and grandparents and great-grandparents did that. And she came over here and established a general store and then a a tavern. And uh, when Prohibition uh, was enacted in in, in the 20s, she uh, she went underground and, and ran a speakeasy. Uh, and and you know the stories that I learned at my grandmother's knee are ones that you wouldn't expect to hear from your grandma, uh, and, and 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 certain kind of gentleman's entertainment that she actually witnessed at in a, at eight or ten years old in in the speakeasy. Uh, and when she grew up, she rent she she uh, owned bars, and there was a, a a famous photograph in in our family uh, collection of my mother. At nine years old, in her communion, first communion dress, from from having made her first holy communion that morning, back of the bar pouring a shot of whiskey for a customer, and that's where I come from. That's those are the kind of people I come from. Uh, we uh, left New York State, came out here when I was nine. By the time I was twelve, my grandma had another bar, and. Uh, and uh, I, I worked there, and you know, when I when I became twenty one, I worked there, and I, and I drank there, and I partied there with her with her customers, uh, and then uh, my mom wanted to open a bar out in East County, and so uh, <clears throat> she went in partnership with Grandma. Grandma basically was the silent partner with the money, and Mom ran the place. Uh, well, my mom's drinking got pretty bad too, and uh, she she got to the point where she or where the, where the uh, uh, beer distributors weren't making, distrib- distrib- uh, make, weren't making deliveries anymore because we weren't paying the bills. Uh, and she was dealing drugs across the uh, bar and kept a loaded uh, sawed-off shotgun under the bar. And, and so, you know, at one point, the bar was almost going into the ground, and my grandmother went to her lawyer, and I went along with her that day, and, and she said, you have two, two options. You run the place or you sell it. And at, oh, I don't remember, 22, 23, I said, I can run it. And I did. And I got uh, beer distributors ba- making deliveries again, paying the bills. Uh, instead of having to go down to the Seven Eleven, buy a 12-pack and turn around and sell it to the customers for a markup. And I keep doing that, you know, two, three, four times a night. So the... Uh, that bar uh, is no longer in existence. My mother, uh, in her own words, which I disagree with, she said she closed it for the good of the community. Basically, she was, she was run out of business. You know, and, and one night, we were all sitting at the bar, and, and for some reason, I forget what was going on, you know, all the, all the crap that goes on in bars, uh, she uh, had closed and locked the front door. And, and uh, the uh, law wanted in. And they came in. They, they broke open the door. They breached the door with their breaching device. And uh, and got in. I don't remember much what happened that night. I don't. I don't think we went to jail or anything like that. But but I just remember that the bar kind of closed quietly not long after that. And it was uh, uh, quite a going concern. It was called the Tumbleweed Tavern in Lakeside, California. And uh, if you've ever drank, if you you know, I I, I don't know what what, what that was. Was it was a a an knowing a knowing comment or something? But um, that's where I, I, I met the woman that is now my wife. Uh, we were dance partners then, and, and I was teaching at a dance studio and getting free drinks at Don's Cocktail Lounge in El Cajon for uh, dance lessons, and she was my demonstrating partner. And, um, life was good. I was 22, 23 years old, and, and so I end up uh, uh, one night, uh, is that Natasha? Hi, sweetie. It's so good to see you. So good to see you. God bless you. God bless you. Um, My grandmother had to get her bar manager up out of bed one night at 3 in the morning to drive her downtown to bail me out after I totaled her car in a DUI accident (laughs) with injury. And that was a ride home I never, ever want to experience again. There were nights when I would crawl home by dawn's early light, God knows what I'd done the night before, who I'd been with, what we'd done. Uh, lots of times I don't remember, but what hurts is the times that I do remember. And when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, I felt dirty. You know, I, I, I was raised by my grandma, uh, Roman Catholic, and trying to uh, trying to claw my way back to respectability on Sunday morning after the stuff I'd done the night before, there was always that, 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 that moral conflict, you know, I wanted to do the things that I was doing, but I, but I abhorred those things that I was doing, and I couldn't make, I just couldn't, I couldn't pick a side. So when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, I had a lot of work to do. <clears throat> One day, my grandma came out of her apartment in the back of the bar property, and she stopped cold, she saw me with a glass of beer in my hand, and she stopped, and she had that puzzled look on her face. With all the money you've cost me, all the heartache and shame you've brought upon us, all the degradation you've visited upon our family. They know all about you up and down the avenue. You know, bar owners know each other and their and their, their, their colleagues. And, and you, you total my car, and here you are drinking, and you should gag on every sip of beer. I didn't have an answer. I didn't know what to say. I just wanted another beer. And that's the sad part of it. Another time, crawling home by dawn's early light. I think that's one of the reasons I don't like morning. I've spent too much time either on public transportation at 5, 6 in the morning or walking home from wherever I'd been partying or, or doing whatever it is we do after after we're done drinking for the night. And, and you know, the, the dawn's early light just... Uh, <laughs> You know, I am not a morning person, and, and it's been a very long time since I had my last drink, uh, my last debauch, as Bill says in the book, uh, and I still don't like morning. I had this job in a, in a restaurant, and I was doing poorly at it, and I got demoted. And then I took some time off to go, uh, to go do a show. I, I am a, an entertainer, and when I came back, my job was not there for me. And the uh, managers uh, decided to take me off to the side and and, and uh, do a little fatherly advice. He said, have you ever thought of going into the military? Well, not only no, but hell no. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, I don't want to be anywhere near a shooting war when it starts off. I don't even like fist fights. You know, I've got a scar from a bar fight up here when I was trying to defend my mother when... She wasn't doing so well, and, and uh, I needed to step in. Well, you know, my mom is a scrapper. She taught me how to how to handle myself in a bar fight. If somebody else is doing the bar fight, you move bar stools and you stay out of the way and let them do what they got to do. That's the kind of stuff you know, <laughs> I wasn't taught about investments and, and and you know and 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 how to put money away for college education for my kids and stuff like that. I was taught about you know uh, about um, God. I almost hesitate to say it. Uh, my grandmother told me about this dancer named Big. Mary, uh, who would dance for the men in the, her mother's speakeasy and her mother speak easy, And so that's where I come from. I, I just didn't come into adulthood with a lot of life skills. And so because I am this impulsive person, uh, from the, the, the restaurant, I went to the recruiting office, and you I know, started off asking questions and walked out of there with a signed contract for entering boot camp nine months later. And I had in on the morning. I woke up in boot camp. I had what I think probably a, a, a universal reaction when the the trash can gets thrown down the middle of the the, the birthing space, and everybody bolts up right out of bed. And like, and, and the reaction is something like this: "Oh my God, what have I done?" <laughs> and kind of like, "Okay, that's it. I'm giving my two weeks' notice. I'm out of here." Well, that you know that doesn't work. Um, now, when I was drinking, I used to have bodily functions at random, sometimes in public places. And I woke, and, 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 and uh, wetting the bed was just a regular occurrence. It was just, and so was throwing up all over myself after I'd been drinking. These were just regular occurrences. It's just the price I had to pay for the buzz. And my, and my disease kept upping the price uh, for, for the fun. Uh, and and uh, never did I say, okay, I'm sorry, That's not, that, you know, that, that, I don't want to pay that much and you know, walk away. And that never happened. I just kept, you know, when all else fails, lower your standards. And I would lower my standards and I would accept the abuse that my disease was visiting upon me. And uh, so I woke up in boot camp three weeks after boot camp started. It's my 24th birthday and I wake up in a wet bed. And when you're one of ninety guys in a barracks in boot camp, most of them are three or four years younger than you are, and you wake up in a wet bed. It you can't hide that. You just can't hide that. And 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 you can't put a towel over it or or or, or a blanket or strip the bed. You know you have to leave it that way. And and and. And I just remember the shame, you know. I remember having a dream. One dream I had before I got here, um, I was in some kind of a theater. And, you know, you got the steps that go down towards the movie screen. And the really, really wide steps and really broad. And I remember that I was naked. And I was falling. And I couldn't right myself. And nobody would help me. And all these people are looking at me. I came later on to understand that that was my disease, going, neener, neener, neener. <laughs> you know, you, you, you can't do anything about it. You have to deal with it. And I just... Uh, so when I got to Alcoholics Anonymous, like I told you, I felt dirty, um, the stuff that I'd been doing. After I left that counselor's uh, office on May 19, 1983... Went and sat down in the cafeteria to ha- have a smoke, a cigarette, have a cup of coffee. You could still smoke in buildings then. And there were three people that passed by. and One of them uh, was a woman I'd met in the bars. And she could drink Jack Daniels as good as my mama. And I respected that in a woman. And I told her I thought I might be an alcoholic. And she said, oh, that's too bad. And I don't remember her walking away. She just like she dematerialized. Okay? And I never saw her again. And the second one was a drinking buddy named Scott. And I, he, yeah, you know, we drinking buddies, we stick together. And he said, What's wrong? I said, I think I might be an alcoholic. He says, No, you don't <laughs> drink any more than I do. <laughs> well, that wasn't very helpful either. But he, along comes this guy that I had spent the first night out of boot camp with, spent in the evening after I got out of the, uh, uh, got to boot camp, got unpacked, got checked in, went to the enlisted men's club. Uh, with my buddy um, f- who was from Texas. And so I, sa- I gave him a 10 and said, go, to- go get us a couple. He came back with a couple of six packs of Lone Star beer and long neck bottles. Okay, most patriotic thing you can do next to dying for your country is to get drunk on Lone Star beer. And I did. And a few shots of Jack Daniels later, and I don't remember a whole lot about the rest of that evening, but I do remember that I scored a free pizza at the pizza parlor because the guy never came back to get it. And I'm walking down the hallway in the barracks at 1130 at night going, pizza party, room 310, pizza party, room 310. And I'm hearing this string of blue language coming out of the, 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 the barracks rooms. And you know, i got to get up at school in the morning, shut the hell up, boot, go to bed, you know, all this stuff. But I got one taker. It was Joe, who lived in a couple doors down in the barracks. He brought the ashtray, I brought the pizza, we had a little party right there. Well, fast forward to May 19th, that's a, a month or so, a couple months and I'm sitting there in this cafeteria feeling like a guy whose dog had just died. And he sees the look on my face, and he, know, he knew that I had this counseling appointment. Now, he had been going to these A&A meetings and figured out that he could drink on the abuse they were making him take. He counteracted it with something, and we were going, yeah, pulling it over on the man. And But somewhere along the line, he, he stopped drinking, and then he started to tell me about it. And when you're a drinker who has no interest in stopping drinking, and you get somebody in front of you that tries to tell you about not drinking, it's like, okay, after about three or four of these, they say, hey, Joe, I'm really glad you're doing something about your problem. I'm happy for you, proud of you, but there's nothing wrong with me. Back off. Well, fortunately, when I was ready, he didn't back off. He asked me what was wrong, and I said, I think I might be an alcoholic. I've never been able to tell this without getting weepy. He sat down across the table from me, and as he sat down, he said, I understand how you feel. I'm an alcoholic too. And he proceeded to tell me enough of his own drinking story that I knew that he knew what it felt like to be me at 3 in the morning when the local honky-tonk was closed and the six-pack to go was gone and the bar buddies, the rent-a-buddies, had gone home. It's like I'd crawled into a cave with my bottle and just wanted to be left alone to drink the way I want to drink. But every now and then, some do gooder would pass by the mouth of the cave to try to offer some help. You know, uh, whether it's my my parish priest, you know, forgiving my sins, or or the the judge banging a gavel and pronouncing sentence, or my grandmother with the finger in my face, money, shame, heartache, total my car, gag every sip of beer. But Joe did none of that. Joe sat down. He crawled into the cave with me. And he sat down as an equal. And he told me enough about his own drinking. He told me about the fact that he couldn't quit. He told me about the trouble that it got him into. He told me about some of the funny stuff he'd done. He told me about some of the pretty disgusting and gross stuff that he had done. And we've all done that disgusting and gross stuff. And mine was probably within the recent week or two prior to that day. And bells were going off in my head. But then he made a tactical error, and he said, so why don't you go to a meeting of AA? Incoming! Shields up! Repel invaders! Throw bullshit! Lie! Do anything! Make it stop! (laughs) Well, I don't have any transportation. Meetings are all off base, and I don't know when they are, and I don't have a schedule. He said, there's a meeting a block away, and it starts in 15 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) And I was left with nothing but the truth. I said, I'm afraid. I don't want to go by myself. And he said, I'll take you there. I will tell you that my life can be divided into two parts. Everything from the moment I was conceived up until Joe sat down across the table from me. That's the first part. There's a little no man's land of about 20 minutes after that. And then when we stood up and left that building, the rest of my life, I have not been the same man. It says in our book that when one alcoholic plants in the mind of another, the true nature of his malady, that man can never be the same again. And that's indeed what happened to me. And we went back to that same building where I had been in that counselor's office. And we were in a different room. And there was, uh, the steps were on the wall, and I didn't know what they were yet. There was coffee, my coffee pot and, 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 and uh, uh, sofas and, and a big blackboard with a bunch of names and dates. And it says, my favorite date is. And I remember thinking, well, that's weird. I wonder what that means. It turned out that the m- names were the, me- the men and women who attended the meeting that met in that room. is was Dry Dock 27 on the Navy train- Naval Training Center. And the dates were their sobriety dates. I'm standing in that room on May 19th, 1983, and i desperately am looking for joe's name and i find it and the date next to it is april 11th 1983 it was right there right there the man had 35 days and told me enough of his story that i wanted what he had and i had a hangover that was the best i could do they went around the room and then at the end they asked if i wanted to talk or if i wanted to share and, you know, I'm a good joiner. My mother said, oh, you were always a good joiner. You know, last year you're this. This year the, you're, a, you're a Broadway dancer. What are you going to be next year? You know, now you're an alcoholic. What are you going to be next year? Okay, what is it? But I said, I think I'm a, my name is Butch, and I think I might be an alcoholic. And then I started to cry. And I don't remember a thing I said. And I couldn't get through the rest of the day. I just, I just couldn't stop crying. And to this day, I will tell you, I don't know why I was crying, but there was probably some relief mixed with some apprehension, mixed with a whole bunch of pain that hadn't come out yet. I went to that meeting every day, five days a week, for the next couple of months until my next duty station. And I got transferred to the Midwest. And I had been taught by my home group that whenever I, wherever I go, I will find Alcoholics Anonymous at my destination, and that I will be home, and I will be safe, and I will be with people who understand. And the night I got there, I made it to a speaker meeting, and a guy named David Rudolph was speaking, and he used to say, my name's David Rudolph, I'm an alcoholic, I'm sober today through the grace of God, the universal fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous, and a reasonable amount of work on my part. And most of that work is going to meetings. And I've since come to understand that most of that work is in going to meetings because if you're an alcoholic and you don't drink and you just sit your ass in a meeting, you're going to die. And it's going to be a painful ride getting there, not only for you but everybody who loves you. Because an alcoholic, without a change of, uh, without a spiritual experience, without a change of thinking, is a miserable person. And that person often either takes their life or goes back out and drinks himself to death, and so in the next two three months, I began experiencing some emotional problems, some some depressions and crying jags I couldn't explain, and I, I one night I was actually contemplating suicide and it scared the hell out of me, and uh, I got got some advice about about what was going on there and uh, from a psychiatric technician and. Uh, kind of talked me down off my emotional ledge in my mind because I didn't know what that what that meant. That I was looking down over that bridge and going, "Well, I'd have to, I'd have to uh, make sure I land right at the deepest part and make sure I land on my head, or I'd be a vegetable." What the fuck are you thinking, bunch? Scared myself. Within the next three or four days, I met David at a meeting after I'd. Uh, been in an, an earlier meeting, which was my usual routine. And, you know, I surfed into Alcoholics Anonymous on a tidal wave of my own BS. Okay? But then the wave peters out, and you're still standing on the board trying to look really cool, man. Okay? And everybody around you's just got their arms folded, and they're staring at you and with that look in their eyes. Like, what are you going to do? Looking cool, man. What are you going to do? And this guy pulled my covers at a meeting and said, we're so tired of your bullshit. When are you going to get honest? When are you going to start walking the walk instead of just talking the talk? Well, I thought, well, man, he should at least have taken me off to the side of the meeting afterwards and talked to me there instead of in front of all these people. (laughs) And at the next meeting I went to, there was my AA hero, David. And I uh, asked for a ride back to the base. And he uh, drove me. We were driving towards the base. I said, David, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not drinking, I'm not going to bars and drinking cokes anymore. I'm reading AA literature instead of Reader's Digest and other fiction. I'm, I'm, I'm going to meetings. Uh, uh, I'm doing what my sponsor tells me to do. I'm trying to be honest, and I'm still hurting. What's wrong? What's missing? What am I not doing that I should be doing, or what I'm doing that I should stop doing? So instead of taking me to the barracks. He took me to a restaurant, and we talked, and we closed the restaurant, and then we went to his house, and we talked literally until sunrise, and during that overnight time, I let go of a lot of that stuff that made me feel dirty, and he kept saying, is there anything else that's bothering you, anything else that's bothering you, and Dwayne and, and, uh, talked about that stuff we're going to take to the grave, even before I had run through the steps I had to get rid of some of that stuff just to lance that boil of self-will and depression and fear to get some relief so that I could honestly and forthrightly go through the steps. And when that night was over, you know, I had always wished that somebody would just hold me while I cried. And he said, stand up and come over here. We're across the room. I'm on a sofa. He's on his chair. And, uh, and he says, come over here, I said. So I walk up to him. He goes, "Come closer." I I have no idea what's going to happen. Is this guy okay? I just dumped all my shit. Is this guy going to try and kiss me or something? What? I don't know. Okay, I don't know. Um, And he took me in his arms, and he said, "Now let it go, let it out." And I started to cry, and I started to wail, and I started to scream. There was so much pain, so much sadness. My sponsor today, you know, years ago, I remember him saying, we all get to AA with this bag of stuff that just went wrong. And when I was all done and the tears subsided and I kind of felt numb for a while, I will tell you that those crying jags stopped overnight, literally overnight. And I realized that I had surrendered that I had surrendered to a God that I could not control, that wouldn't run things my way and wouldn't stop you people from treating me unkindly. And all that stuff kept me drinking and kept me in depression, in sobriety. I went on to do the steps, formally. Wrote out my fourth step, shared it with another man. Got on our knees, ask God to remove those those defects and forgive us for our sins, both of us, he and I. And by this time, I'm being processed for discharge because I had uh, failed treatment. I walked out of treatment after a week and a half of a six-week inpatient alcohol rehabilitation program. And uh, I'm being processed for discharge like a criminal. And that guy that had pulled strings, the guy that had pull, pulled my covers that night had pulled strings to get me into treatment and then started treating me like a criminal because he had... Uh, it got on a limb for me. But the interesting thing is that the change was already happening in me. During the worst of the depressions, I was—I felt so helpless and hopeless, I wrote a letter to the Pope. I know, it's okay, it's okay. Um, yeah, it's funny to me today, but I actually—I did. I wrote a letter to Pope John Paul II. And I, I don't know if any of you, for those of you who aren't following it anymore, he's been created a saint, so... And to be a saint, you've got to have created, you have to have done a miracle, and it has to be verifiable. Well, by the time I got the letter back from the Holy See on on his behalf, the miracle had already occurred for me. And so I'm claiming that miracle. I'm claiming that miracle from St. John Paul II. I absolutely do. I got a little pewter medallion with his bust. I put it in my grandma's casket when we buried her when I had a year of sobriety. I still have the letter. When I got back from Great Lakes, Illinois, we call it Great Mistakes, Illinois. I got a sponsor, (laughs) Great Mistakes, Illinois. I got a sponsor named Jack H. Alpine Jack. For any of you old timers who remember him, uh, and and he helped me through uh, steps eight and nine. And I happened to mention the name of a man who I'd met at 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 my my then home group, La Mesa Men's, and uh, he uh, said, "Oh yeah, Frank's a good phone number to have." So I often used Frank when I was do working on an eight-step item. You know, you've got a name you're looking at and all the stuff that you've got to make amends for. And I would run that particular item through the big book and the 12 and 12 to see everything that it has to say about this particular situation because I didn't want to screw it up and make it worse and hurt somebody more in the process of trying to right my wrongs. Uh, and Frank was very, very instrumental in helping me with that. Um... A few years later, uh, I asked him to sponsor me formally, and he sponsored me for about 10 years, and then I got somebody else, um, and I ran into him at our central office breakfast a few weeks ago, and, and he's, he's now sober a hell of a lot longer than, than he was then, and he, I mean, I was in diapers when he had his last drink, okay? Okay. And, uh, by the way, my, my sobriety date dates to the day that I arrived at Great Lakes, Illinois, which was July 20th, 1983. And I don't know when the, when the NyQuil slip was, but I chose the last date it could have been so that I'm not claiming any time that isn't honest. And, um, I asked Frank to sponsor me again and he said yes. And so I've gotten to meet him at a couple of meetings recently and, uh, uh, it just feels good. And, and uh, your 10-minute speaker tonight was leading a meeting when I, I came to sit next to Frank a couple of weeks ago. And Dwayne started talking about the things that I'd been telling him in Step 8 and 9. And I started to weep because I realized I'm sitting next to the man who taught me that. And I get to see it come around full circle. I get to see the next generation i got two things I want to do before, I, before I, I, I shut down here. One is I want to tell you that I was at La Mesa Men's one night, and there was this guy hanging in the window because it was hot out, and, and uh, you, could, you could stand on the patio and kind of lean your head in the window and listen to the sharing. So he didn't come in. He got there late, didn't get a seat. And he made a beeline for the parking lot as soon as the, uh, as soon as the, the, the meeting was, was over, even before the prayer. And I went around, uh, headed, headed him off at the pass and met him. His name is John. And, and, and I, I, don't, I, I just did what I do, you know, I, I just did what I do. I love alcoholics. I love Alcoholics Anonymous. And I just shared a little bit about, you know, about why I'm here and, and, and what my life is like now. And asked him if he wouldn't mind if I'd, if I'd buy him a cup of coffee. And we went to a restaurant. We talked for an hour or two. I don't remember what we said. Fast forward several years. My wife and I are at the North County Central Office uh, breakfast, their anniversary breakfast, and and there's a gauntlet of greeters. If you didn't get in the committee in time, they just make you a greeter, and you got to go through that line of greeters, man. They're all dressed to the nines. And here's John. And every time we'd see each other at a meeting from time to time, we'd exchange a knowing glance. I was never able to manipulate him to asking me to be his sponsor, but but we had this knowing glance, and we'd see each other across a room, and and, and, and it was just... It just warms my heart. And I asked, how long are you sober now, John?" He said, about six years. That's terrific. That's just terrific. And you could see the light in his eyes. You could see the change had happened. A couple of years later, Sally and I are in the same parking lot, headed for the same event. And here comes this young guy, three-piece suit, and goes to give me this hug. And I've never seen this guy before. And, I, and he walks up to me with his arms open to get a hug and says, "Thank you." And I hugged him, and I said, "For what?" He said, "For taking my sponsor to coffee on his first night in Alcoholics Anonymous." Yeah, I just saw a few eyes go, it's come full circle again. You know We reach out to try to help a new man or woman feel comfortable when they're new in Alcoholics Anonymous." And we get to watch them recover. It says in the book to watch them recover, to see them help others. It's something you don't want to miss. Now, uh, I'm supposed to shut down here in a couple of minutes, so I'm just going to do something that I normally don't do. But uh, uh, remember, I used to hang out at the at the bars and honky tonks, and the most most exciting thing I could think of ever happening was that I might get to sing a second song on open mic night on Sunday nights at the Lakeside Hotel. <laughs> Okay, that was going to be freaking Nirvana, man. I will tell you that I've sung twenty-seven seasons at San Diego Opera as a as a classically trained operatic baritone, and uh, I don't not worried about my anonymity because nobody there knows who Butch is. So there might, there might be some in this room who know me uh, by another name. I don't know. It's perhaps possible. I thought that was you. So so. Uh, I want to leave you with something. uh, The third phrase makes me think of Joe.
1: I believe for every drop of rain that falls, a flower grows. I believe that somewhere in the darkest night, a candle glows. I believe for everyone who goes astray someone will come to show the way. Above the storm, the smallest prayer will still be heard. I believe that someone in the great somewhere hears every word. Every time I hear a newborn baby cry, or touch a leaf, or see the sky, then I know why I